You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me is my co-hostist with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. Hello. Hi. I just want to correct for our listeners before we dive into the huge amount of topics that we have to talk about this week, one thing, because I've been getting a lot of people laughing at me calling you the co-hostess with the mostest. And I want to be clear, you're not the co-hostess with the mostest, although you could be if you wanted, but you're the co-hostest with a T on the end, with the mostest. That's fine. I don't really like labels, um, so I'll work with whatever you call me. I don't really, you know, as I've said before, you can call me dude, you can call me hey buddy, you can call me hey you. I don't care. I'm, I'm good with it no matter what. Okay. I appreciate you making that clear. I shall now call you the Grinch. That's fine. I'll work with that too. There are are days that it is absolutely apt. Yeah, especially at Christmas time when you're all like, why are we putting Christmas cards up in the office? What the? Yeah. You did say that one year. Did I? Yeah. I don't like, it's a mess. Just a mess. I know. I know. But you know, it's festive and it increases morale. So I like it. Anyway, we don't have time for idle chit chat, Paul. There is so much going on. And the first... There's always something going on. But yeah, no, like but this, this time, it's like, we don't have enough. We've got like six weeks worth of stuff that we could cover today. We literally do not have enough time in this podcast to talk about the thing that I thought would be the subject of this podcast, which has been this ongoing discussion of no fault. And of course, the BC provincial government tabled their no fault bill, plus all of the implications of that. And that's going to have to wait for next week. Yeah. Because there is a... You heard it here first, folks. Another IRP red alert. Um, the, uh, the, we're on to like version five now of the IRP scheme. Uh, so came into effect for those of you who are not paying close attention. It's really sad. This is like part of my, my, um, oh my goodness. It's, this will be in my memoirs i will explain it and it's all on our <laughs> blog if you want to read 500 blog posts yeah or, those, or, or those are your boats. memoirs those are my memoirs but if you go back to some of the really old ones it's kind of saucy so the original yeah i know well i was well i had periods where i was angry um so the irp law immediate roadside prohibition law was introduced in bc in about may 2010 and it has changed so many times and each time, like it was struck down once, but after it was upheld, uh, the second version, the court said, well, you know, it can just be, these problems can just be fixed. Paul, I'm going to stop you. Yeah. Because you have given this same IRP history lecture on the podcast like eight times. I'm sure I have. But so we're on to the fifth version it. now. Sure. Fifth version. Sure. Go ahead, Kyle. Version five. But I think we need to tell people where we are now and what... Um, because we glossed over this a couple, uh, a long time ago, I guess now. I'm trying to even remember. Um, we glossed over this a long time ago now, but there was an issue. 
when they amended the legislation April 1st, 2016. In that same bill that they passed, putting the burden of proof on the driver, which of course we've litigated and we've discussed on this podcast extensively, they did something that they never actually put into force and effect. So they passed provisions of the Motor Vehicle Act that would allow the superintendent or the lieutenant governor by ordering council to restrict, through regulation, the type of evidence that you can submit in your defense in an IRP case, the manner in which you can submit the evidence, and the amount of evidence that you can submit. Essentially saying, for example, you have to prove your case, but you only get 200 words to do it, or whatever arbitrary rule that they create through regulation. And it was never put into force and effect. We did a lot of media about it at the time, and I think there was kind of a stink on it that discouraged them from actually doing that, following through with it, following through on it. But it looks like it's gonna happen. And I, they're trying to sneak it in in a sneaky little way. Yeah. So uh, Motor Vehicle Act Amendment um, legislation has been tabled. It's already had second reading. It's just going to sail right through mm -hmm. because all of this legislation does. That's one of the things that is very discouraging when you follow the progressive bills in BC. They're introduced. They're never changed. There's they no, get, they oh, don't they invite all the way witnesses. Through. There's no real discussion. There's no in, invitation of witnesses. Um, and uh, you know, Previously, I'll tell you, the NDP were reaching out to us at one point when the uh, when they were in when they opposition. weren't in power. Uh, we have not heard from the BC Liberals asking us to explain why this is terrible. But as you go through this piece of legislation, it's basically trying to again, once again, unwind yeah. everything that came out of the original decision that struck down the first version of the law like I and feel, take it further. I feel like the BC Liberals, like I feel a little bit like a pop singer, like hey. I just didn't vote for you, but here's my number. Call me maybe, <laughs> please. Well, because you should, you, if you are a liberal and you are listening to this and you're an MLA, you should be calling me and you should be saying, Kyla, how can I oppose this ridiculous legislation and maybe earn back some cred because of all the bad stuff that we did with ICBC? Because the, um, the BCNDP is not going to be able to point any fingers at the liberals for the mess that this new bill is going to create because this is all their own doing. We're not going to go into all of the separate parts of this legislation. Feel free to talk about one or two parts of it, Kyla, but I think you and I need to have some analysis discussion about it before we lay everything out. But it's a huge restriction on rights, basically. Yeah all the way through in the process and it sets up an opportunity for the adjudicators to go seeking out secretly information that you don't even know about at your hearing. So right now the way the legislation operates is there's a provision that allows the superintendent to consider technical materials and that's defined as summaries of scientific medical evidence or other information that are prepared by the superintendent or a couple of other things. But it's a relatively limiting definition although court, courts have taken different views of how limiting it is. Well, and it's published on their website. And it's published and it really on their website. it was designed to deal with one argument that you had before. And yeah. that was the police officers um, putting in false evidence about expiration dates on well, it was, it was, standards and various other things. It was to address like the Burr decision. Essentially. Right? And so they create this, this provision 
And it's passed now constitutional muster because it was part of the things that were challenged in the um, Lemieux case. And the Court of Appeal was like, meh, yeah, sure, they can do that. So now they're tweaking it. So now instead of saying that the adjudicator can consider technical materials um, and defining it um, as containing certain things and giving it this sort of notional definition, now the legislation, if this passes, will say... In a review of a driving prohibition for an IRP, uh, the superintendent may, on the superintendent's own initiative, as in the adjudicator can go decide to do this without notice to you, without warning, consider any statements, evidence, technical materials, and other records and information that, in the opinion of the superintendent, may assist the superintendent in making a decision. So no longer is it to respond to issues raised by the applicant so that at least you have some notice. No longer is it um, just limited to specific categories of information. Now it is so broad as to include anything. And ostensibly, Paul, gives the power to the adjudicator to phone the police officer and obtain a statement to contradict the applicant's version of events or to respond to something or to deal with it, to go get the applicant's driving record or criminal record or insurance claims history. Or go find some report from 1962 that the RCMP used to use that's got completely unreliable science and use it. Or find some contradictory articles and... Uh, that maybe contradict the most recent thing that you found, the most recent science you found, or to find some vague statement made by some police impaired driving committee at sure. some point. Or, heck, why not just extend the time to render a decision over and over and over and over and over again until you go get the forensic lab to investigate the science behind an issue and conduct a study? Or see if you can get just somebody from the forensic lab to write something. You know... The forensic lab, the alcohol uh, forensic lab of the RCMP, was um, was once the uh, we have a friend who used to work there, and he I I think he managed it or supervised it for a while, and it was known as having no bias. It was known as being a very science focused lab, and of course they would still have to testify in cases. It was the RCMP lab after all, but it was very science focused. Now, I recently got some Freedom of Information disclosure. Our, our friend that used to work there has appeared on this podcast before, Nizer Shijani. Yeah. Uh, he was the head. And he said at the time that it was for him science. and he intended it to be pure science, that they did not want to have any opinion that was not scientifically backed and that they were not there to try and, try and uh, build the case for the crown at any time. Uh, but it seems that it's changed a lot. I recently got a ton of disclosure in a Freedom of Information request. It took 14 months to get it from the RCMP. Thanks, uh, Canada. Can we yeah. blame? Thanks, Trudeau. <laughs> and it's, uh, it looks like the way that the lab is being used now is uh, how can the lab help us to create evidence that is going to be useful for us? And the lab responds in such a way. And lots of things that just have not been disclosed by the lab. And it's uh, it's upsetting because it suggests to me that this amendment really is just to allow them to go to the lab, tell the lab what they want them to say, and then come back with some statement that you don't even get to rebut because they don't even tell you about it. And then they use that in your hearing against you. 
And there's a lot in the disclosure that leads me to that conclusion, but there's some other interesting things in that disclosure. I don't know Do if you, you want to move on to talk a bit about that right I now. Don't quite yet. Let's leave that as the like the carrot we dangle to keep people listening through this podcast. Okay. Um, because I want to keep talking about this Motor Vehicle Act Amendment Bill, which appears on its face to be the legislature saying, oh, hey, we have to address this new standard of review issue that arose out of Vavilov and deal with our Section 94 appeals of driving prohibitions. So that's why we're amending the Motor Vehicle Act. And we're making a couple of other consequential amendments, just clarifying some stuff for people who have out-of-province licenses. But the, like, nefarious stuff is not even, is not even in there. Um, it's not discussed. It's in there. It's not well, discussed. Well, yeah, but it's not discussed. You know, they're also, um, in addition to this technical materials thing, they're also amending this not enforce and effect legislation, which is why I say that they're going to bring it into force and effect. Why amend it unless they plan to use it? And the act that's the provisions that are currently not in effect um, have a provision that says that you can't um, you can't submit anything unless it meets the regulations. And they're amending the section that requires the superintendent to consider material. And they're amending it to say they're repealing the section that says that you're required, the superintendent is required to consider any written material uh, submitted by the applicant to any relevant statements and evidence submitted to the superintendent. And while that might seem like just maybe clarifying language that they have to consider things beyond written material. There's also a provision that says they have to, in the case of an oral hearing, consider any representations made at the hearing. So it's not surplusage that they're trying to fix. It's actually a sneaky little thing when you look at the way they amend the not enforced legislation, which says that uh, they have to consider and then this is the not enforced provision that would replace the existing provision, any relevant statements and evidence submitted to the superintendent that meet the requirements of the regulations. So they're going to impose requirements on what you can submit. And in particular, because they're taking out written submissions, they're going to limit your ability to make submissions in writing in your IRP review hearing and limit you to your 30 minutes, as many words as you can get out, non-recorded oral hearing where you can't preserve your right to the record. This is, uh, again, one of those things that is specifically designed at Kyla. Uh, and, it's true. And the reason is that Kyla makes written submissions on all the issues that she won't have time to cover in the 30-minute oral hearing and things that uh, are are matters that are before the court and all she also makes written submissions on most of the oral submissions she's going to make as well uh, because she wants there to be a record of it so we make written submissions in immediate roadside prohibition hearings typically like 150 pages worth of submissions uh, and that's to cover off all of those issues and that is you know would not be necessary but for the fact that they limit us to a 30-minute hearing and unfortunately that's because of me because I was conducting hearings that were taking two hours because there's many things that have to be covered in these cases. And that's when they came up with the 30-minute rule. Mm -hmm. And they're also amending the regulation, the, or the future power to create regulations, about written statements and evidence in their submission, 
to substitute it to say statements and evidence and classes of statements and evidence and their submissions. So they're also creating, you can see the plan here, separate classes of evidence, sworn evidence to be given more weight than unsworn evidence. Even though you might live in Pooskoopy, you might not be able to get into town because your car's impounded and your license is prohibited and nobody can give you a ride, and you can't swear your affidavit because there's no notary in Pooskoopy, and you just have to suffer. You live in Bella Bella, where there's not a notary at all. Too bad, so sad. Your evidence is less deserving of belief than the police officer because it's not sworn. I see this. I see through what they're doing. And you might call me cynical. No, it's, ob it's obvious. It's obvious what they're doing. This is another one of those rip away rights. Um, government doesn't like the fact that, that you are succeeding in IRP hearings. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to come up with some way. And how do I know that they don't like that? It was in that RCMP disclosure that I got. It's each time I get RCMP disclosure, I always look through it and I'm always surprised. The only lawyer, defense lawyer, whose name is ever mentioned in there at any time had ever been is Kyla. Oh, and no, it's not. No, I've been mentioned in there. a couple times, but not in this most recent one. It's just the only time it's the RCMP lab and the RCMP alcohol um, advisory committee and the superintendent of motor vehicles emailing back and forth about some submissions or argument that you've come up with uh, and trying to figure out how they can defeat you. And that's the most disturbing thing is it's a tribunal and the RCMP emailing back and forth trying to figure out how they can defeat an argument that you've developed or one of your clients has. Yeah, and like all of my arguments are actually based in science. So, well, that's the thing. There's science, there's flaws in the scheme. We know that mm -hmm. you and I have recognized that. And when you get a client who's got that, you advance that argument. Right. We and just advance talked that with... argument. And instead of, of, of recognizing it and just revoking the prohibition, they extend the, the uh, time to render the decision for eight months while they change the legislation and then render the decisions. And it's frustrating as hell. Well, that, and also they're sneakily amending the legislation to incorporate section 57 of the Administrative Tribunals Act, which puts a time limit on when you can file for judicial review. So now if you get an IRP decision, you have to file your judicial review application. Well, if this legislation passes, which it will, you have to file your judicial review application within 60 days of when you got your decision. Yeah, so now there's a limitation period. Yeah, and good luck, you know, being able to afford that if you don't have a car and you don't have a job. Just thinking now that maybe we could create some online form that we can allow people to do it so everyone can do it. Just everyone file Just a judicial everyone review? everyone can file a judicial review. I think that that would be an abusive process. Well, We'd... no. So we don't have to be the people who act for it. We'll just help them. Oh, just fill in the blanks form. I like the, the superintendent's form, report. Like the superintendent's report. Yeah. So that people can just check boxes to file the judicial review and, and then just click to print. Yeah. And then they can file their own judicial review. 60 days. Yeah. Might Why as not? well get it done, everybody. Maybe we can encourage thousands of people to do it that way. Yeah. I mean, you got to do it in the 60 days, so you might as well... Get her yeah. done. Yeah, exactly. The adjudicator engaged in an unreasonable assessment of credibility. <laughs> check box. Check, 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 check. Yeah. And then they can, you know, their lawyers can have the headache of trying to sort out thousands of self-represented litigants um, who didn't didn't 
fully articulate their grounds of review. Well, we can give them some check boxes and they can fully articulate them through check boxes. Yeah. I mean, that's how the officers fully articulate their evidence. So. Exactly. I mean, what's good for the goose, right, Paul? Exactly. All right. Okay. Let's, that was a good thought. Let's hear about your crazy disclosure. Well, the crazy, I mean, there's, I, I've, I started making freedom of information requests again. Um, I left it alone for a couple of years because I, for strategic tactical reasons. Uh, and then I started making uh, freedom of information requests again to police forces and the RCMP uh, for information about their ASDs and information about what information back and forth uh, between these organizations. And there's lots of interesting stuff. And of course, one of them is that uh, you're advancing arguments that they can't figure out how to defeat. They just want to defeat them. They don't want to accept the fact that they are valid arguments. Yeah. But I mean, God forbid people in ketosis might produce false fails. Like could undermine confidence in this broken scheme. Stop and let's think about what's taking place here. There's people from Road Safety BC writing to the RCMP saying the adjudicators are frustrated. In other words, the adjudicators are communicating with the RCMP. Through a middleman. In, uh, in this scheme that purportedly is non-biased adjudication in a government office where we don't get to see what's going on. It's not like in an open courtroom. It's a hearing over the phone. We don't know, you know, what the structure is and how the information passes there. We know that there is a, uh, a liaison. It's but a why civilian it... liaison. But why is it even happening in the first place? If Imagine a judge was phoning a clerk in the Crown's office and saying, talk to the Crown uh, because we're not happy about this and get them to phone the police officer and get yeah, some, you know, we're, we're really frustrated. Could you just get the police to take better notes? Yeah, write some It's making it hard for us to uphold all of these arrests and the legitimacy of all of these yeah, searches. We really want to convict more people, but it's getting hard because you guys aren't aren't giving us a better uh, record of the arrest and what took, took place at the arrest. So that's very, very frustrating to see that uh, and to see that in these emails. But um, there's other interesting things in the emails. Uh, there was, of course, discussions about you and arguments that you've brought up. You didn't even show me the discussions about me. Did they at least say I'm nice? They I've called me icky in one set of emails. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what did I do? Like, did I not shower? No, you just advanced <laughs> arguments that made it painful for them. Yeah. Um, that adjudicator is no longer with them. The, um... Who called me icky. We, um... Yeah, well... I wanted I, to accuse her of bias against uh, me. That was a good... Ar that You would have had a good argument there for that. Um... The, um, I know, you know, at some point they probably had my picture on a dartboard there. Um, so I was aware when they replaced the Alco sensor for, uh, with the Alco sensor FST that they had all these extra Alco sensors and that they had, somebody had taken them to the RCMP lab and they wanted to do some experiments on fuel cells. You know, that's fascinating because I was told they smashed them all with sledgehammers. Well, they smashed a lot of them with sledgehammers, which is terrible. Why they would do such a thing is just beyond me. There was recyclable material in there. God forbid they end up in the hands of defense counsel. Well, I mean, they could have just shipped them to some country where they could use even the defective device for certain safety purposes or something. India like. currently uses that device. Exactly. Well, I mean, give it to small airlines or something like that. Sure. Whatever. Whatever the... Anyway, I know that they took some and they were taking them to the RCMP lab and they were going to sacrificially use them in tests with um, cigarette smoke. Because in the manuals, it says, wait five minutes after the last time for cigarette smoke. And I asked Nizer and various other people, show me what the 
reason is for that? What's the purpose? And there was discussions about three minute. Should there be a three minute wait or a five minute wait or a 15 minute wait? How long should you wait? And what's the reason for the wait? And the only reason that Nizer Shijani ever expressed to me was damage to the fuel cell. But I had seen somewhere else some reference to getting just false readings on it. You know what it was? I know exactly what you're talking about, the reference. It was a story that Mary McMurray told at a seminar that we were at in Chicago one year. And she was talking about having a party, uh, attending a party at the head of Intoximeter's house. And she'd brought her PBT there because she wanted to show him something or tell him something about her ASD. Um, it was a, an Alcosensor device. I can't remember if it was an FST or if it was a, a it was a four, but it was an Alcosensor device because in toximeters. And she brought it to the party, and she was making a comment about it. And the head of Intoximeters, president of the company, yanked it out of her hand and said, "Want to see something cool?" Took a drag from his cigarette and blew into it, and she was horrified because she was of the opinion it would damage the fuel cell sensor. But she was even more horrified. I remember this story vividly because it produced a positive reading for ethanol above the legal limit after he did that. Inhaled cigarette smoke directly into the device, or exhaled rather. So we've never done this on Can You Fail It? Um, and we were just discussing it um, earlier today. But the RCMP lab took these Alcosensor 4s and they did tests. And who knows how quickly after... Um, smoking, they did the tests, but they got readings that were elevated by as much as 32 milligrams per cent. So if you're blowing 80, add that to the 80. If you're at 79, uh, you're blowing 117. If you're at 30, you're blowing a warn. Yeah. If you're at 50, well, you're not blowing a fail if you're at 50. If you're at 70, you're blowing a fail. Yep. At 60, you're blowing a fail. No, fails at 100. Yes, it fails at 100, but you're over the limit is what I'm saying. Yeah. And that's presuming that it's only 32. That's just what they got. Maybe you get higher in some you get circumstances. Higher depending Maybe on the circumstances. Lower. And, you know, we've never looked at, we should also test this on can you fail at vaping products. Because from what you've showed me, they didn't test vaping products. They just tested actual cigarettes. They just tested actual cigarettes. Lots of those vaping products, the juice that they put in the cartridges, and I don't purport to know how to use this because I don't vape, um, there's like a fluid that goes inside the cartridge. And that fluid is often contains forms of alcohol, like propylene glycol. Some of them just contain straight up straight ethanol. Straight up ethanol, yeah. And, you know, where's the testing on that? So this was interesting because they did this in 2016. 2016. Now, since then, we are on our third version now, the most recent one having come out just a couple of weeks ago, of the uh, Alcosensor FST Operator's Manual for British Columbia. The most recent one came out February 18th. The one that came out before that was uh, December 18th, 20, uh, uh, 2018. 2018. And the differences between these two manuals are don't discuss any of this. And when it comes to cigarette smoke, they don't tell the officers this at all. No, and you know and what? This is written. I've got the I've got the FOIs to prove it. Yep. Written in consultation with them, they're emailing back and forth about what the wording should be. 
Yeah. Well, even worse than that, Paul, is that the adjudicators, when you raise an argument about cigarette smoking, they say, I don't find that the purpose of waiting for a cigarette is to guarantee against unreliable results. I find that it relates to a damaged fuel cell sensor, and I draw a reasonable inference that a damaged fuel cell sensor wouldn't result in a reading. So because you failed the test, I can reasonably infer that your cigarette smoking didn't damage the test result. So they've known for close to four years. And the adjudicators are intellectually dishonest yep. in those decisions. Yep. Yep. They've known for four years. Well, we've years. known for a long time. But two manuals. This is the new one just came out. And in the, under no circumstances should raw cigarette smoke be blown into the Alcosensor FST well, as yeah. it shortens the life of the fuel sensor. And also causes a fail, but... It says tobacco smoke may damage the sensor. Bullshit. Yeah. It it's a fucking causes lie. a fail. It's a lie. It can cause a elevated reading by at least 32 milligrams percent in their own study. Which brings me to this manual and the fact that as I go through it, you know, uh, there's there's diso there's dishonesty in it. It's a lie. Well, the thing, <laughs> and they can know I, it. Can I tell you, like, you know, you've ranted about your disclosure, and I appreciate it because everything you're saying just confirms everything that we've been saying about this scheme, and we've been cynically thinking about this scheme for years. But the thing that just grinds my gears about this latest manual is the temperature. Years and years and years ago, when they brought in the Alcosensor FST device, they created this, you know, document that said that they don't have to provide the actual temperature. If it's not in the operating temperature range, it won't function. And they said that the operating temperature range was minus 12 to 55 degrees Celsius, which did not correspond with the manufacturer's operating temperature range, because we took the manufacturer's calibration and, and operation course. Well, I took the calibration, you just took the operation. It was minus five to 55 degrees Celsius. And sure, those seven degrees probably don't impact a number of cases, but they never explained at any point why the operating temperature for the manufacturer was different than for the British Columbia device, especially when we know that temperature is so inherently connected to breath test readings. And you can go on our Acumen Law uh, YouTube page and find the time I burned my mouth with boiling water to prove this. And I got an elevated reading by 20 milligrams percent after I literally scalded my mouth with boiling water. I drank actual boiling water. Um, I did, yeah, <laughs> in a video. I don't remember that. Yeah, it was a couple years ago because I, I was trying to prove a point about temperature, oh. mouth temperature. Mm. Um, anyway, temperature is so fundamental to breath testing that they needed to have it right. And they finally after all these years, figured out that they had programmed the temperature range in the devices incorrectly. And they're not telling anybody about it. No, in they've, they've August. Made a, they changed the manual. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. In Go back. August, they did the reprogramming. Every device that had its service from well, DAVTEC. They're, they're still reprogramming them up till this August. They've given themselves a window. An expiry date of August 2020. Yeah. But from starting in August, every device that's been serviced from August till now and until next August is being reprogrammed with the correct temperature range. To the temperature range we identified. Yep. And, and that, that, that we've had government lawyers on the other side saying, no, you're wrong. And we've had 
adjudicator saying, no, you're wrong for all these yeah. years. And court saying, well, they, the RCMP says this is the way it is, so this must be the way it is. Yeah. I mean, if you tell, like a computer only knows what you tell it, and all these devices are, are computers. If you tell this computer that its internal temperature needs to be a minimum of minus 12 degrees Celsius, or it's not going to function, it will believe you even if it's not going to function correctly outside that temperature. And when you have the way it works in the reverse, so a higher internal temperature for your breath is going to contribute to a higher reading, and a lower internal temperature for the device will contribute to a higher reading because it's going to measure your breath as being hotter than it is. So this actually caused falsely elevated results. And the problem with this, Paul, the disgusting aspect of this to me, is that although the officers are trained to note that the operating temperature is in the appropriate range, I have yet to find an officer who can articulate what it is. I cross-examine them on it in every trial, and they're like, I don't know, I just know it won't work if it's not in the right range. But in fact, it will if it's programmed with the wrong range, and they don't know it, so they don't even know what they're looking at. And they write down on the report within range, which means that there are potentially thousands of innocent people out there who had falsely elevated readings and it can never be discerned. And what are they doing? They're covering it up by putting it in a one-line statement in the, in the new version of the manual, no public disclosure, no investigation into this potentially causing false IRPs by the lab, no investigation by government into how this grievous error could have happened. And no, uh, no bother to go back and look at some of the decisions that have been rendered on temperature and maybe uh, uh, for those that are outstanding, correct it and not even tell people about it when they discovered it in August. They sat on this for, what, what are we, well, Mark? Well, we told them years February, ago. February, but they sat on this August, September, October, November, December, January, February. That's six, when they started making the change. So yeah, they knew they, about they it long before. but they sat on the that. information and they didn't even make the information public for six months and now it's public, but they didn't draw anybody's attention to it. Well, it's public and that's the, I spent an hour going through the manual comparing yeah. each page. Until Two I, lines. Yeah. It, well, it was on three pages, but it is only the temperature lines and it's just a tiny little change in that manual. So most people it's, will not notice it. It is sickening. It's, they snuck it in and it's, again, it's this dirty, this dirty connection that you see where you've got this liaison dealing with this, um, impaired driving advisory committee, which nobody is going to tell us who's on there. And they claim that they're free from uh, freedom of information uh, disclosure. And then uh, the RCMP lab getting pulled into it too. Um, and uh, and the manufacturer. The manufacturer, of course, is full on in it because they want to keep selling these devices. Oh, sure. They wouldn't want anybody to know that they programmed, because it's their programming, they programmed them all incorrectly for BC. Yeah. They're complicit. I mean, there could be a lawsuit here. Yeah, there could be a lawsuit. I mean, it'd be one that would be beyond our uh, office doing it. It's We'd have to... Well beyond our capacity, yes. But it's certainly an argument that could be made. I mean, I, I it's frustrating for me because there's nobody who has the expertise that you and I have about the even the process and the devices to pull it all together. And we have the knowledge and we can't be the expert witnesses for it. So, no. Know. When, when, when necessary, and it's something that I've done the investigation, we've done an affidavit from me, um, but you know, I'm reluctant to do that. I'm a lawyer and, and I'm also going to be arguing these cases. Uh, you know, I don't feel that I have a bias, but 
I just do my best to lay out the evidence. Yeah. So, I mean, this, all of this, this bombshell sort of week uh, is why we don't have any time to talk about ICBC. But I just want to say the one thing. I think, you know, this is strategically released with the ICBC stuff taking place. Hundo P. And it would probably get some news, uh, but for coronavirus. Yeah. And my last thing that I want to talk about very briefly, and I'm sure you want to wrap up, but what are the police going to do with all the people with a fever? Coronavirus fever. Your readings are inaccurate. Yeah. If you have and, a fever, you're... And do you really want to test somebody in that circumstance? Yeah. You want to touch that mouthpiece. Yeah. You want to get your... Even with the plastic on it, new way who's it? If I'm sick and I'm thinking I'm sick, I might want to keep a sheet of paper in my car that says, I have a fever. Probably we should, you know, not open my window. Um, yeah. It, because I, 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 I don't want to... If I have coronavirus, if I contract it, I don't want to give it to a police officer. Please don't contract it. Well, of course, I'm doing my best not to, but <laughs> someone will die around us. Uh, you know, if somebody contracts it, there's, you know, somebody we know will. Sure. It's only a matter of time. I think so. Yeah. Um, okay. But I do want to wrap up. And even though we've got all of this craziness and now both you and I are, are worked up and angry and I'm a little bit trembly, um, about we've had, my... We've had trouble because we both know it, but we haven't had a chance to talk about this shit. Okay, haven't had a chance both, to talk about it, but also, but like... looked at it and... What do you do with it? That's and how do you explain it? Like, well, we've exposed all you know, sorts of other horrible a, things they've done in the past. Great, fantastic news story, but like... There's a lot of science that goes into it. Like it needs to be like a full on like investigative, like John Woodward type thing. Um, and I, I just don't see it happening. And we've had all of these stories about the IRP scheme over the years. Each time these bit of dirty, dirty it. things, there's probably fatigue about it, but so many dirty things. But a lot of like old police officers, I was approached by an old Port Moody police officer the other day, old, I shouldn't say old, very nice guy, um, but older experienced officer who was around back in the day when I exposed the Port Moody problem, mm -hmm. uh, like in 2011 or whenever that was. And, you know, he's one of those people who have been following. There's people who have been following all of these yeah, and, turns. and lots of police officers actually appreciate that we're doing what we're doing, so. Many do. Um, but we have to end on a lighter note, because otherwise I won't sleep. Um, so I thought I'd end with our ridiculous driver, or drivers, of the week. The ridiculous driver of the week. And this is uh, an award probably given to the most ridiculous drivers in one ridiculous driver of the week segment that uh, we've had certainly yet and probably will ever have. We should be keeping track. 52 weeks a year, we, maybe we should do a summary of the best ridiculous drivers at the end of the year. Well, this group of people, these ridiculous drivers, are half of all commercial trucks oh my in goodness, Burnaby. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Just yeah. 50% of all of you. Good. What Feel, is going on? Feeling safe on the road? Driving Don't. beside that truck? Don't. <laughs> 50% of the trucks on the road will not pass an inspection. Yeah, you have a 50% chance that truck next to you could kill you. Could lose a wheel and come flying at you. So they did a safety blitz uh, recently in Burnaby. Uh, they um, 
took 147 vehicles off the road, which means they tested almost 300 cars, 297 inspections. 147 were pulled from the road. 440 total violations. But this was trucks, right? Not cars. They're commercial vehicles. Commercial vehicles. Mostly. So, yeah. yeah but the trucks. They're, they're targeting the big rigs, right? 440 total violations. And of the, of the inspections, 347 mechanical defects. So, like, you know, violations can include things like improper signage, like if you turn your sign the wrong way. So, okay, whatever. But, like, 347 mechanical defects. So how many did they pull from the road? Did they pull? 147 off wow. the road. Think about the towing. Think yeah. about the towing of that. Think about the windfall for the towing companies and the hours and hours of towing big rigs and five-ton trucks and such things away. Yeah. And so lots of them actually weren't towed. A lot of them had things that they could have fixed on site. Yeah. Which means sheer laziness on the part of drivers not doing their pre-trip inspection and not fixing it when they saw it. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um, I have seen this take place in uh, New Westminster um, on previous years where they set up surprise mm -hmm. uh, uh Heavy yeah, truck right off the uh, when you come off Marine Drive there, over that little overpass, right thingy. in front of City Hall. Uh, oh, I've yes. seen it there too, and um, they've had dozens of trucks pulled over. And you're feeling sympathetic for the truck drivers, uh, but at the same time, why, how does this happen? It's because of competition. They're all trying to survive and and get their job done and earn as much money as possible. And they look at the safety concern and they think, ah, oh, it'll probably be okay. But of the of the 147 ridiculous drivers this week. We have one driver who took the cake. Stands out. He stands out above the rest. Congratulations, sir. Uh, he only had an L, okay. a Class 7 L license, which yeah. means he can't be driving a commercial vehicle. Well, can you not be driving a vehicle that's registered as a commercial vehicle, like a one-ton mm -hmm. truck that's owned by a... No. Those trucks you require at least a Class, I think, Class 3 or Class 4. Well, okay. I don't um, know. Anyway. Anyway, the was not eligible to drive that class of vehicle. No supervisor, of course. No supervisor. And, and, okay. and more than 50% of the turn signals, brake lights, and headlights on that vehicle were non-functional. Wow. So one That's turn signal, <laughs> one headlight, one, one brake, brake light. light. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a country song. One signal, one brake light, one headlight. <laughs> I'll write that tonight. Yeah, yeah. It was sung to the tune of one whiskey, one scotch, one beer. Sure. But I, I don't, you know, my tunes are original, right? My yes. songs are original creations. Mine are all beautiful parodies. Uh, anyway, uh, whoever you are, sir, why? Just why? I'm sure there was a reason. It probably made perfect sense. You know, I really got to get this truck over there. Yeah, I don't have a supervisor and I'm not allowed to drive it. And none of the lights work. Well, 50% of them work. Well, that's not too bad. Okay, yeah, well, 50% you know, work. One's better than rolling, none. Rolling, rolling, rolling. As my mom would say, better than a poke in the eye. Sure. Yeah. Your mother has a uh, surprising number of clever phrases. She does. Uh, all right. Well, that is our podcast. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And I'm sorry that we worked ourselves up into anger, but uh, we're angry. Yeah. Um, or we're 
uh, frustrated. And if you this. are a class action counsel and know something about suing the RCMP or DAVTEC or intoximeters and want to talk to us about it or just generally angry like the rest of us, give us a call 604-685-8889 or find us online vancouvercriminallaw.com. Tune in next week for another episode of Driving Law.